Um, good to see all you guys again. Two weeks seems like two months to me. Yeah. Seems like it's been a long time. Yeah. If you guys remember, we're in the book of Acts. Um, if y'all want to turn to Acts chapter 17, we'll go ahead and dive in. Um, Acts chapter 17, what basically is happening here in Acts chapter 17 is we're just picking up where we left off uh, last week. Uh, last week, the Apostle Paul set out on his second missionary journey. So that's what started in Acts chapter 16, the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Um, he headed out on his second missionary journey with Silas, a man named Silas. And along the way, he actually picked up two additional helpers uh, for his missionary journeys. Does anybody remember what two uh, men joined the mission last week? Or actually, this is probably tougher than I thought, two weeks ago. Who joined their, their missionary journey in Acts chapter 16? You can cheat if you want. You could probably pick up a name or two there. Timothy, Timothy was one of them. Yeah, I remember he met Timothy in Lystra. We all know Timothy. Uh, one more interesting fellow joined the missionary endeavor last week as well. Uh, you're actually not going to see his name in the text. What you are going to see is him start saying, we, we went here, we did this. So who was that? Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, actually joined the missionary um, team. So, yeah, that's who we had there. We had Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And what we saw is really the, the Lord just sovereignly directing their travels and their missionary endeavors last week. You know, we saw the, the Spirit of Christ directing them and preventing them from going to certain places. And they made it all the way into the city of Philippi. Um, so we ended off in Philippi. I don't know if, if, if you guys have enjoyed it like, like I do, uh, but if you want to turn back in your maps and just look, again, I'm going to read just the first verse from Acts chapter 17. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 17 as well. But we'll see... Um, where the missionaries are going to go today. Um, if you remember where Philippi is, um, it's probably in the very top left of your, of your maps. Uh, most of you guys will have a map of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, but we're in Philippi. Uh, that's where we ended off chapter 16. And chapter 17 starts off by saying this, uh, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, if you see those, those are just really very close to Philippi, but they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. So if you can find Thessalonica, it's really just south of Philippi, right along the coast. Uh, but that's where we're going to pick up with uh, the missionaries today is in the city of Thessalonica. Um, if, you want to, if you want to, since you have your maps there, um, if you want to, I'll just tell you where we're going to go from Thessalonica so we don't have to flip back and forth the whole class. But the missionary uh, journey today in Acts chapter 17 is going to go from Thessalonica. They're going to go to the city of Berea. You all remember the, the Bereans? They're going to go to Berea, and then from there they're going to go all the way south into the city of Athens, to Athens. And so that's where we're going to be um, today. They're going to cover much territory in Acts chapter 17. So as I said, we're in the the city of Thessalonica. Most of you guys hopefully are, are, are familiar with the city, being that uh, the Apostle Paul actually writes um, a couple of uh, epistles to those churches. First and Second Thessalonians are addressed to, to this church here that, that the Apostle Paul starts and plants. And uh, the text told us that there's a synagogue there in the city of Thessalonica. 
And so, as always is, when Paul comes into a city and there's a synagogue, verse 2 says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them. That's the synagogue. He went to the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and was saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so the Apostle Paul goes into the synagogue, the place where um, there's Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And the, and the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, they have the Old Testament uh, scriptures. That's what they study. That's what they teach from. That's what they uh, believe in, in, in a sense, is, is the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament scriptures as, as really the common ground uh, to show to them and to explain to them and give evidence from the text itself that Jesus is the Christ, right? That's what Paul's preaching. He's pointing to them to the Messiah. He's showing them that this is the one who the Old Testament was talking about. This is who you should be, have been looking for. It's this Jesus. Um, what's, what's interesting about what Paul's trying to prove to them that, that the Christ must suffer and die these, and, and die and, and rise again this is what Paul's proving to them because um, that really is the stumbling block for the Jews, the, uh, the suffering of the Messiah. That when you read through the Gospels, that's really what most of them stumble over. Is they're not, they weren't looking for a Messiah that was going to suffer. Um, the, crucifix, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was, was unacceptable to them. Um, they wanted the Messiah that they knew from the Old Testament Scriptures that was going to reign, that was going to be victorious, that was going to redeem them from the Romans. That's all they were looking for. They weren't looking for a suffering uh, Messiah. But Paul here is showing them that the Christ had to suffer these things, that the Christ had to suffer these things, and it was right there in the Old Testament. Um, you know, that, 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 that text that we've been studying, really, we've been studying, there's a whole book based on the, the understanding of the fact that all the Old Testament scriptures um, speak about Christ. You know, that's why we're studying Jesus on every page in the Men's Fellowship. Well, that, that, that core text for that understanding is in that Luke 24, where Jesus was telling on the road to Emmaus those guys, he's saying that from Moses to the prophets to the Psalms, um, they were all predicting, they were all saying that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory. Right? So the Old Testament, all of the prophets spoke of this reality um, in, in many different ways. We've been looking at those different ways in our men's, in our men's study of how the Old Testament uh, prophesied the suffering of Christ. So that's what Paul's proving through the Old Testament is that this Christ who he's preaching, this Jesus, um, would suffer and rise again from the, day, the dead. So let's look here in verse 4 at the result of Paul's preaching in these synagogues. Uh, verse 4 says that some of them were persuaded. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And so as Paul preaches Christ in the synagogue, showing from the Old Testament, some of the Jews believed. You know, Luke uses the word, some Jews believed, but many, many of the Greeks believed. So we have some Jews, but many Greeks uh, believing in, the, in, in Jesus the Messiah. Um, so what's happening here is we see Paul starting to gain a following. Paul in Thessalonica is gaining a following. And, uh, and the Spirit's obviously moving and opening these people's eyes to, to Jesus being the Messiah. 
And so as we always see, when God is busy at work, um, there's also somebody else. The enemy is also always there fighting. And we see this really here in the next section of, of Acts chapter 17. Um, let's just read together. Uh, maybe somebody can read it, read it for me. Does somebody want to read verses 5 through 8? Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. Somebody do that for us? Go for it. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them to, out to the crowd. And when they had, could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And when the people in the city authorities were disturbed, when they heard these things, and when they had taken them, and when they had taken some money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Perfect. Yeah. So what what we see happening here is just as with uh, Jesus's ministry amongst the Jews. Um, here the Jews are becoming jealous. The text says that they're jealous um, because the, the missionaries are gaining this following. Some of their disciples, some of their uh, people in their churches are, are, becoming, are, are leaving and following the missionaries, and it's making them jealousy. It's making them jealous. And so as jealousy goes unchecked, um, just as with the, the Jews that crucified Jesus, um, we see just great sin coming out of, of this jealousy and uh, so what these Jews did is they, they uh, how did the ESV say it? It said they, they my, the NASB says some wicked men from the marketplace is who they went and gathered. What does it say in, in verse 5 again? Some rabble rousers or something? It just says rabble. I mean, oh, some rabble? Um, so, so that's almost kind of helpfully explaining what, what the picture is happening here is, is these Jews went into the marketplace where there's usually just a bunch of uh, commerce going on, but there's also just these, these as the NASB describes it, as just wicked, wicked men hanging out in the marketplace. This rabble, the ESV calls it. And they gather just these wicked, basically useless men up, and, and they get them to form a mob. These men probably have no clue what Paul was preaching. They have no clue whether he's right or wrong. They're just wicked men that probably just for a little bit of money um, were willing to do this. So what they do is they, they basically have this mob attack the, the house of Jason, that's why Jason probably wanted to read that part. Uh, um, but uh, they attacked the house of Jason, who was just simply obviously um, housing the missionaries, and it may have been where the first uh, Christian church was in Thessalonica. Um, so they have this mob uh, seeking out the missionaries, trying to find them. They don't find them at Jason's house. Um, so they take Jason and some of the brethren instead, uh, but what, what we see is Paul, Silas, and Timothy basically um, dodge this house raid, um, but they can tell that Thessalonica, basically, their, their ministry is done in this city. Um, the Jews have turned the, the people against them, and so they're done. And so in verse 10, they're going to move on. It says, uh, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, to Berea. So... Um, that's what happens. If you remember Berea, they're just, they're just moving down the coast uh, there of uh, Mesopotamia. But um, Berea, as I said, is just south along the coast. And verse 10 goes on to say, when they arrived to Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 11, now 
These, talking about the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek men or Greek women and men. And so here is the, the, the missionaries have to move on. And they come to Berea, we meet the famous Bereans. A lot of you may be familiar with the Bereans already. These were the ones who were called uh, more noble-minded. It's how we know the Bereans. Uh, but the, the text actually gives us really a couple reasons of why the Bereans were considered to be more noble-minded. Um, we all know the, what, what usually comes to our minds, I think, is the fact that it says they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's how we know the Bereans. But look at the other characteristic that the text says of them, that they receive the word with great eagerness. Right? Both are true. That's why they're noble-minded, not simply because they just examined the text you know, and, and were critical about what they were hearing. That wasn't just it. They weren't so critical that they didn't hear anything. They also received the word with great eagerness. And so... Um, I know, like, I just see it, like, in our circles, predominantly, like, in, in, in churches that have a high view of theology, doctrine. Um, we're very quick to want to be like the Bereans in that we search the scriptures, right? We're constantly checking, constantly testing. Uh, but what can happen is that we almost become so um, critical to a sense um, where we never actually receive the word, right? So in order to be noble-minded like the Bereans, both need to be true, and both are important. We should always be testing, always be checking the scriptures to see if these things are so. Um, but at the same time, you want to have both aspects just as the Bereans did. You need to actually be receiving the word in the same way with great eagerness, right? So I know, I mean, sometimes it can be a challenge. Um, you know, a lot of times maybe we came from churches that didn't care about doctrine or theology, so when we come to a place that does, we're almost just so excited to have it, we almost forget about everything else. You know, all we care about is, you know, theology and doctrine to the point. We're just trying to learn something new. You know, but when we leave uh, teaching or preaching, uh, we need to have the text having uh, spoken to us in a way that we were edified, that we were built up in our faith, that it spoke to us, it exhorted us, rebuked us, whatever the text had for us. Uh, we don't need to be leaving uh, the, the sermons just thinking about either, a, you know, a, a, a Greek tense of some verb that we're trying to figure out or some theological query. That's not, you know, what we need to leave the, the preaching of the word with. We need to be edified by the text. We need to know what, what the text was trying to teach us, right? And I just think, like, sometimes we can get bogged down. It's happened to me. Like I said, like, once you start studying Greek, you know, and you've got your Greek Bible there, I mean, you can try to figure out some little nuance that you completely miss the point of the sermon. You don't even know what, what Pastor Mila was preaching about because you're studying some little nuance. You know, so we always want to be uh, actually receiving the word, you know. Um, so, so I think that, that's, that's how they were noble-minded. Yes, sir? Uh, and I, I hear you and I agree with you, but how, yes, do you, how do you do that with a style that is different than the, what we're used to here? We're, we're used to, uh, you know, you and, and uh, Pastor Emilio, verse by verse, word by word, you know, phrase by phrase, and, and, and I love that. But if a guy right. comes in who might be a little more topical, but he's still preaching the text. Right. Uh, or, or maybe even, you know, one of those like, Calvary Chapel guys, they're going to cover a whole chapter in a sermon. Amen. How do you, yeah, that's hard to do. How, how do you 
How do you do that? Just, just wondering. How do you? You mean how do you receive? Receive the word. If it's just exegetical. If, if it's if, if it's not exegetical, if it's more topical, or if it's even more of a survey, even more broader than than what what you're doing here. Right, right, right. It's, um, still, good, it's still biblical. Well, yeah. So, so what you want to look for is, is the text is always going to have a point and a meaning, right? No matter how it's presented, even. Sometimes a topical message, that's all they're trying to do is bring home for you the text rather than even hit the exegetical nuances. You know, so it, it's, it's what the text is saying. Even, like in, even in this text right here where it's just a, a historical narrative, even with this point right here that I'm making, you know, you can, you, the text can affect you. You know, you can be renewed in your mind and think, man, I don't need to be so um, discerning, you know, that I'm not like the Bereans and I don't receive the word with eagerness. You know, so um, I guess what you're saying is, uh, you need to be looking for what the, the point of the text is and not just looking for, for nuances all the time that you can nitpick. You know, it's just, just the way you're receiving the word. Prepare yourself beforehand, you know, to, to receive whatever the text has for you, whether it's rebuke, whether it's correction, whether it's exhortation, whatever. Um, and that, that, it's part of the pastor's job. Like you talk about the different styles of preaching. Uh, application is part of the, the job to bring it home, you know, so people aren't just didn't just learn some facts, mm -hmm. but the text came home to them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that's the preacher's job, like you're saying. But it's, it's part of our job, too. Um, we were talking about the Bereans. You know, there's two aspects to why the Bereans were more noble-minded. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just that they were discerning and, and just that they checked the scriptures. It also said that they were uh, receiving the word with eagerness. So both aspects have to be true. Not just discerning, but you also have to be uh, receiving the word. Right? Um, so... This is Berea. This is Berea where here the Apostle Paul once again has an open door for the gospel. And once again, um, look who's not far behind, verse 13. Acts chapter 17, verse 13 says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Um, as I've been saying, this is just a constant pattern that I've seen throughout the book of Acts. You have the apostles doing their ministry and spreading the gospel, and not a verse or two later, um, you have the enemy showing up to discourage and to um, fight the spreading of the gospel. And so just as this is almost getting very repetitive, just going through the book of Acts, um, I think here again, maybe some application from this uh, just narrative, is the fact that um, we likewise do not need to be discouraged um, as we're attempting to spread the gospel in whatever capacity it is that you spread the gospel, you should expect the enemy to uh, fight back. Um, anywhere God's working, we're seeing the enemy is always there, likewise trying to fight. And so whatever capacity it is that you share the gospel, uh, you should expect uh, the enemy to be, to be pushing back and fighting and to not be discouraged by it. Because we know for a fact that the Spirit of God was working with these missionaries, but yet the enemy is always there battling, fighting, discouraging, persecuting. So just know that this is all part of the fight. This is just part of the Christian, Christian battle. Um, so here, uh, with the Jews having chased down Paul, he seems to be at the center of attention, and uh, he gets forced out of Berea, verse 14 says, uh, then immediately, immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now, and in case some of y'all are wondering what happened to uh, Luke, well, I think Luke actually got left in Philippi. 
I think Luke got left in Philippi where that church got planted, and we don't actually see Luke again until the third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20 when Paul picks back up with him in Philippi, just in case you were wondering where Luke is. But here um, we have Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Um, Paul is sent out. Silas and Timothy remain in Berea. Now, verse 15 says, Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. They left. So now Paul, um, by himself, is in Athens. Paul's in Athens. Um, there, he, he's, he's awaiting the help of his fellow missionaries. He wasn't there long before writing to them, hey, send, send the brethren. Send the brethren to Athens. Um, so he's there waiting for his fellow missionaries. Um, Athens, I don't know what, what comes to mind when, when you hear about the city of Athens, but um, Athens has a very long history of being known as just a very intellectually, um, intellectually elite city in, uh, in history. Uh, men such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these, these guys resided in the city of Athens, um, these, these philosophers. And uh, verse 16 says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was uh, observing that the city was full of idols. And so, yes, Athens was an intellectually um, elite city for, for many, many years. Um, Athens is, is, a, is a Greek uh, cultured city, which includes all the polytheism that came with the, the Greek religions and, and Greek, uh, Greek culture. So it was a very polytheistic Greek city, um, as it says here, which was full of idols, full of idols. Um, one man once said of uh, Athens, they, they all quote this, this guy that says, uh, in Athens you would be more likely to run into a god than to a man. Speaking of all these idols that were there, you'd be more likely to bump into an idol, to a god, than you would uh, to a man. And so Paul found this to be true. Paul shows up, shows up in the, uh, Athens, and all he's seeing is idols, temples for these gods. Um, he would have seen the great Parthenon. The Parthenon was this, this great temple uh, made for the goddess Athena. Athena, where Athens gets its name from, from the goddess Athena. And you know what Paul didn't do, uh, as he's seeing all these, these great buildings and all these, these idols, is Paul did not sit back. Um, he didn't take pictures. He did not admire. He wasn't admiring the beauty of these things. Paul was not impressed by the great Parthenon and, and the, all these structures that these Greeks had built. Um, his spirit was pro provoked, it says. He, his spirit was provoked. He was deeply troubled uh, that this entire city uh, was not worshiping the true God and that they were, in fact, worshiping idols. Um, he was not impressed. Um, and I, I've, I've kind of felt that myself. I've had uh, a buddy from work come back from Rome with you know all these pictures of these great um, churches, beautiful churches, and everybody's admiring just the beauty of these churches. And I was not impressed by those churches. They're Roman Catholic churches, you know. Um, I, I was not. I didn't admire them. There is beauty to them, you know, aesthetically, I guess. But when you realize what they were built for and how they got built and all of that, it's not beautiful. It's actually very sad. Yes, sir. Jason, do you have something? I was going to say along with what you're saying, because a lot of people look like to these buildings and they'll say, look at this, this then shows the creator God, therefore. But it was funny because in, with these Bereans, you have mm -hmm. them studying the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And in verse 12, it says, 
essentially that's what caused her belief. This is many of them therefore believe, whereas I think a lot of people think they already believed. Right. And so they're super Christians setting in, but here the result of them setting caused the belief. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually the Berean. Yeah, they weren't believing until Paul came, you know, and they searched the scriptures and believed the gospel. Right, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. Yeah, the, the, the faith came by the study of the scriptures, uh, by the word of Christ even. And the study of those big buildings. <laughs> yeah, they weren't converted by the pretty buildings. Um, yeah, and, and, and neither was Paul impressed by them. Right, can you, can you picture Paul, the great apostle Paul, walking around the city and just being provoked? I mean... Paul's supposed to be in, just waiting. He's supposed to be in waiting mood, uh, waiting mode. I mean, you know, just waiting for the fellow missionaries. But as he's seeing all this idolatry, he really can't help but speak. He can't help it. And so, verse 17 tells us, as was his custom, um, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And see, so we're not weirdos for going out into the marketplace. We're doing just what Paul did. Um, verse 18 says, And also he was reasoning with uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and these were conversing with him also. And so here we get introduced to maybe a couple new groups you may not be familiar with. Um, we, we've, we've met the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Um, but here we're introduced to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Um, these, these different philosophical groups that were uh, really predominant in Athens, um, these groups have a, a, a few distinctives to them that these people who followed Epicurus, um, they basically believed that when the body died, um, that there wasn't really an afterlife. You know, you kind of, your body kind of goes to be, you know, worm food, as they say. Um, so really the point of life is simply to gain pleasure and avoid pain. You know, a lot of people have that same mindset these days. Um, that's all life is. Gain pleasure, have the most fun you can, you know, avoid pain. Very simplistic. Very simplistic worldview in that sense. Um, the Stoics, uh, maybe just from the, the name you can get an idea of the way we use um, having a Stoic mind frame, but the Stoics believe basically the, the highest point or the highest um, place you can achieve um, in life is coming to the place where um, the outside world doesn't affect you. Um, it doesn't affect your state of mind. Doesn't it doesn't affect your, your your being. Almost like you just take life on the chin. They had like this fatalism, fatalistic idea where, you know, basically nothing can change um, what's going to happen. So you just need to deal with it. You need to come to the place where whatever happens to you in life, whatever affects you, you just have that that stone face. You know, just life doesn't life doesn't affect you. You know, that's why we call it you know stoic. You get that stoic look on your face. Um, that, that's basically their worldview was, was really a fatalism. And so it's how, do you, how are you going to deal with the, the idea that there's fatalism and you can't, you can't do anything about anything. You just take it. Take it like a man, sort of. Um, you know, the, these worldviews kind of seem simplistic and silly, but at this time, th these were the intellectual elites of, of the Greek culture. This would be like if you found yourself um, sharing the gospel with... Uh, around Cambridge or Harvard, you know, when you're talking to the philosophy students. These would be the, the, the kind of people, you know, the intellectual elites that, that Paul found himself in the midst of. Um, so, so going on here in verse 18, uh, because I think the second half here of verse 18 is really um, all important for the, all significant for the rest of the, what we're going to see here, which ends up being a little sermon by the Apostle Paul. 
it's very important to, 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 to get this here, what the end of verse 18 says, because here Luke um, is giving us the, the very content of Paul's message. Uh, verse 18 says, some of them were saying, this is the Epicureans and the, and the Stoic philosophers, some of them were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others were saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because, Luke tells us, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Um, I say this is, this is important because you, should, you just have to know before we even go on, what was Paul preaching? Jesus and the resurrection. And what's so interesting about this is how the, the Epicureans and the Stoics received that message. Jesus is preaching, uh, 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 Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But these Epicureans and these Stoics, this Jesus and the resurrection are such foreign such foreign concepts theologically to them that they completely twist up uh, what Paul was preaching. To them, they were hearing Paul preaching strange deities, plural. That's what's so odd about that verse. They were hearing more than one deity being preached by Paul. And what was Paul preaching? Jesus and the resurrection. So somehow they heard G uh, Jesus, the, the, who Paul was obviously preaching as deity, as God. They hear this male uh, man, Jesus, is God, Jesus, male, and they hear um, what they, they hear as being almost probably like a goddess, the resurrection. Anastasis is, is the Greek word for resurrection, and there was a Greek goddess, Anastasius, which so in some way, you know, that's how they always viewed the gods, you know, the male and female, and they make other gods, and that sort of idea, but that's somehow what they were hearing, strange deities, plural. It's very interesting that that's what they got from Paul's preaching. We know Paul was clear about his preaching. They just weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. So, verse 19 says that they took him. They took Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus. For, for those who aren't familiar with the Areopagus, this would just be like a, a, a council, a council meeting of all the, the intellectual elites. Um, that it's literally the hill of Ares, or as most of you may know it, it's even in the NAS, NASB as Mars Hill. They brought him to Mars Hill. Mars Hill is just the Latin for, for this, uh, but it kind of just carried on. So they bring him before, which is really like what the uh, city council, just a governing council, uh, this group who checks all the new teaching, political issues, religious issues. Uh, they're going to check Paul's message. And they're saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and so we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, Luke gives us a little insight. He says, now all the, Athen all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And so they, they hear Paul preaching. Uh, they're actually interested. It's a new message, a new teaching. They, they bring him into the Areopagus to, to check him out. And uh, as Paul has received an invitation once again to spread the message, Paul's always obliged. Paul's more than willing here to go on. He's going to preach to them. Starting in verse 22, it says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And so I think this is also a very significant 
um, point in, in the chapter, in this sermon, on, on how Paul begins his, his, his message here in the Areopagus. Because he does not start his message by basically placing um, his teaching, his revelation on equal par with everything the Greeks have. That's not how he starts off here. Um, Paul really begins here by establishing uh, the reality of these people's ignorance. That's how he starts. He's showing them how ignorant they are. and what, Not only that they're ignorant, but he's also making the point that they're even self-aware of their own ignorance. That they would go make, a, make an idol to an unknown god. They're, they're basically, just as you can kind of imagine, they're just kind of covering their bases. You know what I mean? They're just making, a, making an extra idol just to cover their bases, make sure they got them all. Um, but what Paul's going to proclaim to them, um, he's going to relate to them the, the fact uh, that there is a God who actually has revealed himself to them. And that ignorance, ignorance of this one true God is not a reality nor an option. There is no ignorance um, allowed when it comes to, to this situation that they're in. Paul's going to explain this God, verse 24. The God, singular, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And so right out of the gate... The Apostle Paul is just challenging their worldview and, and their view of, of God and, and, and their view of their gods. Um, he's doing this in several ways. I think most significantly, just the way he starts off in verse 24, the God who made all things singular, monotheistic, you know, not a plurality of gods who were all doing these workings you know, amongst men. The God, he says, one God. So this would be directly opposed to all of their polytheism that they, that they had. Um, second, he says, the God of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made by human hands, um, which means that all of their labors, all of their sacrifices, all of these things that they did for their gods um, was all really um, a waste of time. All of that was a waste of time. And uh, third... Uh, they, they did these things because in their view, the gods were really dependent upon their service. The gods needed these things from them. You know, sort of in the way you see, like, people uh, putting the food in front of Buddha, you know, like, Buddha needs you to feed him or something like that. Um, really the same sort of situation here where they're serving these gods in that way, like the, the gods need it. Uh, but here, Paul's making the point that uh, God um, is not dependent on you. You're actually fully dependent on him. For every single thing, mm -hmm. for your life, for your breath, for your food. So all of this is just, I mean, he's stepping right on their toes in the very first, very first things out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. Verse 26 says, um, and he, speaking of this one true God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And so it's interesting how Paul even includes here in his, in his preaching of God the creation account, the creation account of mankind and how mankind came from one man, uh, created about God, uh, created by God. He declared to them just the absolute sovereignty of God over all the affairs of men. 
he even he even says what affairs he's talking about. Um, how did he word it there? He says they're appointed times, meaning basically, you know, even how long they live, how long they exist, mm-hmm. is appointed by God. The boundaries of their habitation, where they live, where the, these people groups are going to live, where you're going to live, all of this is appointed and, and, and set up by God. He's absolutely sovereign over all of these things. Um, and so now what Paul's going to do is, is, is really tell them that uh, despite their claimed ignorance of the true God, um, God has actually condescended in such a way, um, he's revealed himself in such a way that he's had uh, all of this very intimate interaction with his creation. He's created them. He's determined all the boundaries. He's, he's active in his creation. He's had all of this uh, condescension and uh, imminence for a reason. Verse 27 says, so that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. And so what Paul's saying is this, this intimate relation that God has with his creation, there's many aspects to it, um, but, but God is so uh, imminent, he so, he so interacts in such a way with his creation that Paul can actually say God is not far from any of us. Um, and so that reality um, is all fine and good. You know, he's basically saying you can just reach out and grab him. He's so right there with you. The only problem with that is, is of course, uh, the result of, our, of the fall, the result of sinful, our sinful nature. Um, even though God is obviously right in front of our eyes in a sense, and that we, can all, we all know that he's there, uh, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and, and what we end up doing is just basically groping around in the dark. You know, he's there, but man doesn't find him. Man just gropes around in the dark. Um, they're, they're unable to take hold of, of this God who, who they really know is there. Um, so, that, like what I'm talking about here is just all this, this Romans chapter 1 knowledge of God. Man obviously has this. Um, and Paul's going to show them that all of these realities are even in the writings of the Greek poets, these realities. Because Paul's no dummy. Um, the Stoics, there's this group of philosophers that, that Paul's run into here, uh, Stoicism was really the predominant uh, philosophy of Tarsus, where, where Paul was from. Paul would not have been uh, ignorant of uh, Stoicism and what they believed. He's actually going to quote one of their philosophers here to, to help uh, bolster his, his point here, verse 28. Paul says, For in him, in this true God, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, and here's the quote, For we also are his children. He's quoting um, Eretus. Eretus is a Cilician poet um, who said these words, for we also are his children. That's kind of the point that Paul's been trying to make, that we're created by God um, intimately, not in a salvific way, but we are his creation. Um, We're we're connected with him in that sense. Uh, But what, what you need to understand about this quote that Paul uses of this polytheistic poet um, is that that poet was not speaking of the one true God when he wrote that. Actually, the reference is to Zeus. If you're familiar with like Greek mythology, which is what it is, um, that poet was, was referencing Zeus and saying that we're all his children. And so Paul doesn't quote him to show that he was right um, about who created and sustains them, 
But this is just simply, as, as they say, it's a point of contact. It's a point of contact in that Paul's grabbing onto this is showing that these concepts are there. They understand these concepts, that they're created beings um, by God. Um, but unfortunately, they suppress the reality of who this one true God is in order to have their, their polytheism and idolatry. Um, so uh, with that, in verse 29, Paul's going Paul's to wrap up his critique, and he's really going to bring it home here uh, to the, all these Athenians, because um, he's going to de- declare to them what their response should be to this, this message that he's preached to them. Verse 29 says, uh, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, verse 30, therefore, having said all these things, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And so there's there's a lot there as Paul brings this home, but um, basically what he starts off saying is that these Athenians should not be finding comfort in the fact that God has not already reached down and wiped them out um, for their lack of of true worship. They shouldn't find comfort in that. Uh, Paul's making them well aware that uh, God is right now not, um, he's not allowing that ignorance to go on anymore, but now he's commanding everyone to repent. Those times of ignorance are over, where God didn't just immediately judge everyone for their, for their unbelief. He didn't break out and, and judge these uh, Athenians. They may have thought everything was fine and good with, with the way they were worshiping these gods. Um, but Paul's bringing the reality to them um, that everyone must repent. And why do they need to repent? What's the motivation for that? And Paul says that judgment is surely coming. That's why you need to repent, because judgment is coming and uh, this judgment is going to be brought about by the man who Paul started off preaching about in the first place. That's the God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, some critics of, of even this, this message of Paul have, have noted, like, well, man, he doesn't seem to preach Jesus Christ very much here. He just mentions him as the one who's going to judge, but there's no explanation, you know, of, I thought Jesus preached, you know, I thought Paul preached nothing but Jesus and him crucified, right? So... Who is this Jesus here that Paul fails to mention? It just helps. That's why I made the point when we started off. Who was Paul um, describing at the very beginning? Why did he get brought to the Areopagus in the first place? It's because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You know, just because he didn't mention the name again, they already knew what his message was. That's why he was there in the first place. So, you know, I, I, I just found it to be a pretty weak point, weak argument that Paul didn't preach Jesus. That's why he was there in the first place, because he was preaching Jesus to the point that they heard him preaching strange deities. He was preaching the deity of Christ. They heard him preaching God, you know. Um, So here we see that, and Paul's making the point that repentance is necessary um, for everyone, not just a select people, not just at a certain time, um, but repentance is is commanded by God of everyone. And what's the the undeniable proof um, from the text here that Paul says God has given to mankind to know that all of this is, is a reality. What is the proof that God provided that all these things are, are, are true and certain and are going to happen? Resurrection. The resurrection from the dead is the proof. 
that's the proof that God gave that all of this is, is, is true. Um, and, it's, and, and, and the resurrection actually proves many things. It proves the reality that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that his ministry was, was accepted by God the Father. Right? That's first and foremost. The reality that Jesus Christ wasn't who he said he was, who the Scriptures said he was. You know, the Scriptures foretold he must rise again on the third day. Jesus did. So that point is, is there in the resurrection. Also, uh, the, the Bible teaches us that the resurrection also is, it pro- is proof to us that we likewise will be raised to judgment. Christ was raised, the first fruits of the resurrection, so also all of us will be resurrected. Um, not just uh, the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. Everyone will be resurrected and will stand before Jesus Christ in, in judgment. Right? Everyone will be given resurrected bodies. Everyone will be given bodies that will be able to, um, uh, that will be fitted for their eternal dwelling place. Those who are going to hell will be resurrected to a body that will be fitting, uh, fitting to withstand the, the tortures and pain of hell forever. We will be given glorified bodies that will be um, sinless and able to be in the actual presence of God. And the resurrection of Jesus is, is proof that all of these things are most assuredly going to happen the resurrection. That's God's proof. Um, verse 32 goes to say that now, um, see, that's great news to us, but look what in verse 32 says. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, some began to sneer, meaning they, they, they laughed, they kind of made fun of Paul. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So, verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So even one of those council members, right? Nobody's above being converted by, by the Spirit of God. Even the most intellectually elite, God, God can save and change their mind and their heart. We see that there. That's a good example of that. And there was a woman, even women can be saved, and a, and a woman named Damaris and others with them, right? So in all of this, I just... I think as, as, as we looked at the way Paul preaches um, to even the most intellectually elite, um, we see the great confidence um, that the apostles preached the gospel to. They preached with great confidence no matter who they're speaking to, Jew, Gentile, intellectual elite, women by the river. You know, the, the, the confidence is there. that They are fully um, 100%. Their faith is grounded in the realities of all these things. And so I just think you too ought to be encouraged to have the same confidence, have the same apostolic confidence in the gospel. You know, that's, that's part of the spirit being given to the church, that you'd have power to be his witnesses. You know, the spirit should be encouraging you to be faithful. Uh, I just thought that the Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts, this is the way he said it. Just, I just remember his confidence. Verse 36 said, uh, Peter in his message said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Know for certain. Not, not you know, 99.9% chance that all this is true. He's saying, let you know for certain that Jesus is the Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's pray and we'll go to service. Well, Father, Father, help us to thank you more for the faith that you've given us. Um, for the fact that we that we have had our eyes open and our and our ears open to and our hearts open to believe that um, these things are 
100% true. Father, we pray that you would help our unbelief in any moments of doubt that ever come into our lives. Father, in any things we hear and things that we see and the way the, the enemy plays tricks on our minds at times. Father, we pray that you would grant us the faith to have the, to have the faith that the apostles had, the faith where they were willing to lay down everything, the faith that they could say that let, let it be known for certain that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that, that our church would, would, would build our people up with this faith, the faith that would um, last um, for, the, for the lifetime, a faith that would leave here and would actually produce fruit of, uh, of evangelism and fruit of praise and fruit of thanksgiving. Uh, real lasting faith, God, is what we ask for uh, for our people. Father, I pray that you would bless Pastor Emilio's sermon today, that our church would be unified in, in the teaching of uh, Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians. I pray that we would have great unity in our church. Father, that we would be just a, a light that shines in, in Frisco, that a light that, that others would envy, that others would want, that would actually uh, be a lighthouse, God, for, for even the other churches in our area, Father, that, that we would hold your word up so high that we would honor you in all that we do, Father, that we would be an example for other churches, God. Give us mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.